Welcome to Writing Black Joy Season 2. I am Sophia Robinson and I'm a writing coach and an editor and a story listener, as well as the producer of Writing Black Joy, a virtual space that celebrates, centers, and promotes the voices of Black writers and storytellers with joyful and uplifting stories. Here, you'll find conversations with some of my favorite Black writers and storytellers. Learn more about their projects and the joy they're bringing into the world. Hear more about their creative process and find inspiration for your own creative ventures, as well as tips and strategies for writing poetry, blogs, creative nonfiction, fiction, plays, and so much more from all types of writers, as well as a sneak peek into the writing life. You can even find your next favorite writer, book, poem, play, or blog. And if you are a Black writer who is looking for a coach or an editor to help you bring your joyful story into the world, then click on my website below to find out how to work with me. In the meantime, let's go to today's guest. Today's guest is Dahlia Kinsey. Dahlia is a nutritionist, speaker, and author who works at the intersection of holistic wellness and social justice. Dahlia and I talk about identities, how we identify and how the language of identities is personal and changes over time. We talk about health versus healthcare and how our daily experiences and emotions, including joy, impact our health behaviors. Why Dahlia wrote a book specifically for BIPOC and LGBTQIA folks, and we'll talk a bit more about those terms at the beginning of the episode. How Dahlia worked up the courage to write a book proposal and get a traditional publishing deal. The importance of safe spaces and community, especially if you are a writer, and particularly one who holds one or more identities that have traditionally been marginalized, and so much more. I hope you enjoy this conversation as much as I did. Hey everyone, welcome back to Writing Black Joy. I'm so happy to have with me Dahlia Kinsey, who we've been stalking each other around the interwebs for the last few months. Just in case you wandered in and you're like, who are these people? I'm Sophia. I'm the host of Writing Black Joy, where I center and celebrate Black writers with joyful and uplifting stories of all sorts. So we're going to hear a bit about Dahlia's in a minute. Uh, First, let me tell you a bit about Dahlia. So Dahlia Kinsey is a registered dietitian, a keynote speaker, and an inclusive wellness coach with years of experience working at the intersection of holistic wellness and social justice in public and private sectors. Dahlia rejects diet culture and teaches people to use nutrition as a self-care and personal empowerment tool to counter the damage of systemic oppression. On a mission to amplify the health and happiness of BIPOC and LGBTQIA plus folks, and I'm going to explain that for anybody who doesn't know what that is, Dahlia continually creates wellness tools and resources that center the most vulnerable individuals that hold multiple marginalized identities. Dahlia's work can be found at www.daliakinsey.com. Obviously, that'll all be in the show notes. And just Dahlia, uh, in case you, I mean, I told you, you know, I'm in Barbados. And uh, especially the expression BIPOC, we don't tend to use that here. I know they don't tend to use okay? So I just wanted to break that down for people who don't know. BIPOC is Black Indigenous Person of Color. Um, and so 
if we use that, that's what we mean. So we are talking about persons who are basically, they're Black, they're Indigenous, they may be a mixed race, uh, they may be from Indian origin, whatever the case may be. I only discovered what that acronym meant, uh, like within the last year or so. So I know a few people who wouldn't know, and of course, LGBTQIA. Um, I'm going to let Dahlia tell you what that means. So that's basically queer folks. The term queer, I know, used to have really negative connotations, mm -hmm. but a lot of people have taken the term back. So if you're a millennial or younger, you probably think of queer as a neutral term that people use to refer to themselves. So it's lesbian, gay. I feel like I need to see the <laughs> letters written out to get the order right. That's but it's like lesbian folks, gay folks, people who are questioning, people who are intersex, uh, asexual is what the last one is for. I know sometimes people think it's for ally, but it's really for like the agender people, the asexual people. And it's just a massive umbrella for people who are not heterosexual and cisgender. So <laughs> trans is also one of the letters in there. Perfect. Thanks for explaining that. And, um, you know, it's, you talk about taking back the word queer, I, I, I also thought about that in terms of when I heard the expression person of color, and I always think of when people talked about people were colored and I was like, yeah, I was so shocked when I heard that. I was like, we're doing that now. I was really, I had, it took me a minute. <laughs> English is so strange. And I am wondering if I would feel the same way about this in other languages, but the very minor changes you make to an expression, how it totally changes how it reads. Because if somebody said that colored girl, which I've absolutely had people say that to me in my lifetime, which is ridiculous. I was born in the eighties, but when somebody says of color, for some reason, it sounds great to me. I, I don't know what the big difference is. And it's so funny because like I said, when I first heard it, it took me a good hot minute to like Say like, is this okay? <laughs> is that okay? And um, what also, and I mean, this is just a conversation, but what, what the other thing that really irritated, I remember I wrote a whole <laughs> blog post and I talked about it. I was like, I did not even, I don't necessarily like those umbrella terms because yeah. I feel like a part of the problem with the umbrella terms, like maybe BIPOC, um, same LGBTQIA plus is like, I feel like it almost minimizes a whole group of people and it still puts the, almost normal lens on the white cis hat, <laughs> you know, that type of thing, because you're saying it's almost like, you know, when somebody described it to me the first time I heard BIPOC, they were like, so basically if you're not white and I'm like, so we're still basically dividing the whole <laughs> world into white and not white. Is that, is that what's happening here? And it, it just upset me. So my friends had to be like, okay, come, come, come now, calm down, calm down. <laughs> Cause I was, well, I know a lot of people feel really strongly about that. And mm -hmm. I, for me, it resonates probably because th this is not really directly related to anything, but just the way I was raised in a very, we're going to say just, I didn't want to say cult, but yeah, maybe it's culty, right? So raised in a religious setting where people minimize differences and pull themselves together under an umbrella. And it just feels very comforting to me, but the differences still exist. Now in that setting, it was still toxic the way marginalized people were forced to 
play down their identities more than anybody else. Mm -hmm. But I like the idea of having maybe more political power too, by Mm -hmm. being more cohesive. Because when I think about whiteness in the United States, this is not a monolithic group of people. Mm -hmm. Whiteness is like an invention that is a big old umbrella term for all these people who used to have very distinct cultures. Very and- distinct cultures. I always think there's this book. I, I have to read it and I'm going to confess I haven't, but I, it keeps coming back so much so that it's, it's been on my to read, to read list for years. And it was, it's about the Irish, right? Mm-hmm. Who used to be a very marginalized group. And it was just a shock to me to find out, like I, somebody always tells me like years ago in, I guess it must've been in the UK and they'd have those signs that would say no blacks, no Irish, no dogs. And it was yes. like, literally it is, it is a, it was a really derogatory thing. And, you know, it's so funny to me how you have this whole thing, like now you've just loved, they, they've actually lumped themselves together as well. So I suppose when you think about it that way, I guess I understand it, but I always, I have these uh, friends, group of editors who I'm like, giving a shout out to, because they've been so amazing at, sharing all the episodes and they like the term people of global majority because oh yeah that's what we are Asian people are are the biggest group and then all the diaspora and African people were the second yes so people of global majority and then I like that makes me feel good (laughs) and um I'm also you know as you said English is a funny language language is funny in itself and so you know I kind of have come to accept <laughs> the term BIPOC even though I do still cringe a little bit when I hear it because I just feel yeah. like oh you lump it like you know I think about especially and I guess I always also think about you know persons of indigenous origin within that group and I'm just like so they're just going to get gathered up with like I don't well know. I know some folks are for that reason have said that they don't feel like we should leave with black But I have to admit that pinched a little. And I was just like, you know what? I'm just going to let people do what's right for them. And I'm going to try not to have an emotional response to this. But I, in my experience, but of course, this is through a Black person's lens, anti-Blackness is so intense. And all of the communities that we're accepting under this umbrella of BIPOC, that to me, leading with Black felt like the thing to do because once mm-hmm. you deconstruct anti-blackness you're going to make mm-hmm. massive amounts of progress for everybody else but you know i i haven't lived my life as an indigenous person i no, know that trauma is no. very different yeah. and so i'm like if it does not resonate for you then you shouldn't use it and mm-hmm. but when you're writing you know it's so hard to express yourself in a way that can really be understood and stand the test of time and there's some yeah. things that just they're going to become dated. And even when I used that, I was like, is it already dated? Because yeah, more and I'm, more people are like, I don't want to, yeah. it doesn't resonate. And then in some yeah. English speaking countries, people are not using it at all. At all. Exactly. Yeah. And like I said, I, have, I grew up in Barbados. I've lived in the UK. I've lived in other countries. And I've never, i never even knew what that expression meant, which is why I said, like, can we just break them down? Because I know I have listeners from all over the world. And I wanted to make sure that people are feel included in the conversation. But yeah. also, you know, to your point about language standing the test of time, and this is related but unrelated, but, you know, as my sister always says, it's your show, you can do what you want. <laughs> and, <laughs> and I think about 
so growing up, we, we used to read a lot of um, Enid Blyton books. That's mainly mean nothing to you, because I find people in the US don't tend to know as much about Enid Blyton as they do in the UK, because she's a British writer, or was. It's back in the 40s she was writing, and 1940s, I should say. And okay. um, there's so much inappropriate things that now would not be acceptable that she might have said or written about. And that's something you know, that's happened in Disney movies. It's happened in other types of films. It's happened in a lot of other books. and. I don't really believe in erasing it either. I feel like we need to understand what was happening at that time and what was being done. And we can have a discussion about it now to say, well, maybe we don't say that, or maybe we don't use that and why, and what did it mean? And why did they come up with it? Because as you said, when people, when, when that expression came out, it was, it was like a real taking back in some ways of some of the terms that had been derogatory, right? At a time when, it might have been a, a, a put down, you kind of take it back. And we've done that with so much of language. And it's important to understand that at this moment in time, this is where we were. This is what we were doing. This is why we were doing That's why I love about books. Like, this is what we're doing. This is why we were doing it. If, we've, if, if it has been that we've moved on from it now, why have we moved on? What's different? You know, why do you think they came up with it? Why do you think they abandoned it? All of that. And I think I, that's why I feel like you know, obviously you make sure whatever you're writing now is you, you, you feel comfortable with what you're trying to express and you have your editor who may help you with that process. And then you can't plan for 20 years down the road when we're saying, where, who says that or whatever, Plan (laughs) for that, you just have to be like, okay. That's one of the scary things about being a content creator, being a Mm -hmm. writer is knowing that even as you're trying to do something that's loving and coming from a good place that you are still going to inadvertently hurt somebody's feelings and you're going to offend somebody. And I don't mind offending the people who are in love with white supremacy, like be mad, stay mad. But it does worry me when I'm like, man, some of my own target audience is going to be put off, but that's just the thing you have to accept when you make anything that you can't control other people's experience of it and that you can't even fully know all of the things that you believe that are connected to how you were raised and what part of the country you were raised in. Mm -hmm. Because even though defining people as white and not white makes no logical sense and is uh, offensive on, I can see levels, but because I'm from the Southern United States, that is how things are. That's how things have always been in my lifetime, even when people started denying it. When I was a kid, you still saw signs up for colored water fountains and white water fountains. And when it came to who gets to use which, it was a matter of what do people clock you as? It doesn't have anything to do with how you're raised, your ethnicity, your actual culture. If you came over here and you were dark skin, a person who speaks Hindi, then you were at the colored fountain and maybe your sister was lighter than you, same two parents, she would be told she had to be at the other fountain. It's, it's not right, but who we are is often a product of what systems we've been forced to live with. And mm-hmm. it's really hard to filter those out. So I acknowledge in the book that this is through my lens as a black person from the Southern United States. And one of my parents is 
half Jamaican, half Cuban. So I'm certainly more aware of the rest of the world than the average American, but still I'm American and Americans are about America and it is normal here and socially acceptable and even encouraged to know nothing about the rest of the world. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I'm so glad that you stepped out (laughs) to come and join this vision (laughs) on her world tour through uh, through books. I really appreciate you spending some time with me and taking all the detours because I, I feel like we're going to go on a few and I love, I love that. So welcome. Welcome. Thanks for joining us, Dahlia. So you. you just uh, published, I think I feel like it's been really recent, Decolonizing Wellness. Tell us a bit about the project, what inspired you to write it. You're going to talk about it a little bit, but I, there are so many things I absolutely loved about it. Uh, you're going to hear about those soon, but I'll let Dahlia tell you a little bit about the book to start with. So my whole life, I have felt this bubbling up that people were still saying, people were saying that everything was fine. And it was just clear that Black folks were still being treated totally differently in all settings but no one was acknowledging it. So even now people from the audience may know in the United States, there's a lot of debate over whether or not critical race theory needs to be in the public school system. It obviously does. However, when I was in public school, people were basically teaching that slavery wasn't that bad. Literally, those are like the words people would say. And that it's Northern propaganda that slaves were mistreated and that the Blacks, as they would say, or the coloreds, okay? And this is ridiculous. They were saying this in the 90s. I just want people to understand that. I'm hurting with this. (laughs) Versus what people were claiming in the media about how much we'd progressed. It was bananas that in my real life, as a black child, I was being taught by people that I know protested integration, people that I know actually had contact with relatives that owned black people. I know that a lot of these people still had people on their property that never left, not all enslaved people left, right? So if you had nowhere to go, maybe you stayed on the property of the people who used to own you. So you just think about what a disconnect that is between reality versus what everyone is saying is going on and how much work you have to do as an adult to actually get the right information to know that these folks committed crimes against humanity. Enslaving people was beyond terrorism, beyond. And people just didn't teach that. So going through that educational system becoming an adult, really seeing the differences in life expectancy for Black people versus white Americans. It's like a big old gap. It could be 10 years, sometimes at different points in my life, it's been like a 20 year gap, but everybody in public health, everybody in the university setting kept saying it was our fault. Oh, people aren't eating right, which is low key saying if they ate a more assimilated diet, they'd do better. People don't understand what they need to do to take care of themselves, which I heard as people are too, black people are too ignorant to even know what to eat, which is obviously offensive, stupid, and wrong. So going through all of that and seeing where racism was influencing how everyone was approaching black health 
really is what led to this book. But then also realizing, of course, a lot of people know this younger, but I didn't really clearly identify as not straight until probably my mid-teens. It just kept getting clearer and clearer and clearer. And living in the South, that is not something people are open to or warm about. And so that was another layer of that was another barrier to being able to accept myself and be able to prioritize my happiness and my own self-care because you're trained as a person of color, sometimes as a queer person, as a person assigned female at birth, that your needs are just not that crucial. And you're trained to put everybody in front of you and you're trained to focus on being productive because that's the one way you show that you have value in a culture that doesn't appreciate any of your marginalized identities. You can't just be a person. You can't just have feelings. You have to prove that you're being of use. And especially in the United States, that's why there's so much stigma around people getting the assistance that they need because there's all this shame that's put on, I would say all of the working class, but especially people assigned female at birth and people who are not white, that you must be productive, that that's like our job, our responsibility, and that's our only way to be worthy. Mm, So working through all of those issues. And like we said before the call, having the experience of having to go into healthcare settings for yourself will really open up your eyes to things that you might've already known, but it just, it becomes front and center. So when I was trying to get treatment for fatigue, my hair suddenly falling out, just a long list of symptoms, it was so hard to get people to get beyond my skin color and my body weight to actually listen to what I was saying and look at the symptoms that I think I had symptoms of Graves disease for at least 20 years before I got diagnosed. Yeah. And they let my thyroid get so burned out that I felt like I was at death's door mm-hmm. and I was in my late twenties and yeah. all this time I had insurance. I had access. The story is, Oh, black people are dying at these higher rates because they're just so impoverished. They don't have insurance. They don't go to the doctor. I was going and I wasn't getting the same treatment as everyone else. Yes. So, and on top of that, you are, you know, and this is something that, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm willing for somebody to, to say to me, that's probably not the correct thing to say, but like, I feel like I worked at, you know, and you and I talked about this as well. I worked in healthcare. I've worked in healthcare for over 20 years and really and truly on top of all of that, you're somebody who's educated and, you know, that's another, that's another people, people's perception of you. If you don't speak a certain way here in Barbados, we call it the Queen's English. Clearly you're not going to call it that in the U S but like, you understand what I mean. It's like mm-hmm. how you speak and how you present yourself and all of those things. Then I feel like that even changes more how you get treated. So I'm like, mm-hmm. if you, a person who was educated and, you know, felt like you could advocate for yourself, ask the right questions and all those things, you're still getting that second class treatment then yes. that's crazy to me. It makes me think like, what, what's happening to, to, to everybody else who is, that's doesn't an excellent have point. That's an excellent point. Cause there are layers. It, it's funny people. A lot of times they think of privilege as something that always looks exactly the same way, mm-hmm. but even that difference, you know, it, mm-hmm. I didn't do anything special 
I'm not better than anyone else who hasn't had an opportunity to go to school that no. wasn't raised by parents, you know, that taught them to read at an extremely young age. Because a lot of times, if you leave it to the public school system here in the U.S. to teach your kid how to read, that's a mistake. You have to be reading well by third grade or you are screwed because from there on, everything that you're taught is going to be based on your ability to read for comprehension. But if your parents didn't teach you before you got there, day one at five years old, you are behind. And if both of your parents have to work, if one of your parents is deceased, if one of your parents is not in the home, that's not your fault, but it's going to affect you. And I forget sometimes to factor in that the privilege that I've had by chance, well, I mean, some of it was my parents intentionally, but I didn't get to pick my parents. They just are my parents Mm -hmm. that I do speak the way that I speak. And I've had a high understanding of medical terms from pretty small. And still, it didn't really help that much, but I don't know if I'd even be alive if I didn't have that much access, if I didn't have insurance, if I didn't have jobs that let me leave for as many doctor's appointments as I wanted, because that is not normal in the U.S. No, it's not. No, it's not. And to have the money to be able to pay for all these visits, yeah, that also is not normal. No. So I, it's really upsetting when you think about how many people are dying so young because as hard as they're trying, the systems that are there to take care of everybody who's ill don't serve them. So you have to go in and force people and beg people to give you what you need to stay alive while everyone else is out here saying it's your fault that we're just not trying hard enough. We're not literate enough. We haven't worked hard enough to get beyond, you know, generational poverty. It just isn't true. And so when George Floyd was murdered, that was the catalyst for me. Not the fact that he was murdered because that's normal here in the United States. Sadly, yeah. Murdering black people, that's been par for the course since the inception of this country. But what's funny is like the global narrative and what the media has been saying, they act like, oh, this is some big surprise. Or like we stopped enslaving black folks that hasn't stopped. Now it's the prison system. But the narrative is that everything's fine and this is the land of the free. But when that's what you've been told from really small, it only makes sense that you believe it or at least that you believe it to some extent until it becomes undeniable that that is not the case. Mm -hmm. But what really got me about his murder was the reaction of the people that I was connected to online. So these were colleagues, some of these were friends, some family, just seeing how everybody wanted to blame him and seeing how some people just didn't have any opinion at all until there was loss of property because when people were demonstrating, some people show up just to riot. They're usually not actually the demonstrators. It's just other random people. But to see how people only got upset when like stores started getting burned, but nobody had anything to say when this man was murdered, screaming for his freaking mother. Like how in the world can you not see the humanity of that person who was so scared they started calling out for their mom? Because you know that only happens when you are just, you're out of your yeah. mind with fear when you Absolutely. call for your mother and your grown person. Yeah. That's what did it for me. That's what pushed me over the edge because up until then I was carrying around a lot of fear about speaking out about racism, about homophobia, about being completely out of the closet. I was out of the closet to friends 
for at least 25 years. But my parents being very conservative, I wasn't feeling ready to be abandoned or to be told that I was disgusting or to be told that, well, we understand that maybe you're that way because people get the vibe, right? When you're a kid, people know before you know. Mm. But then when they saw me marry a straight man, they thought, oh, good. We don't have to worry about it. This is never going to be something that's out for everybody to know. Like we can forget about that now. Right. Mm. But I don't want to act as though I'm ashamed of who I believe I was born to be. I I think there's nothing wrong with me. And I also think understanding that there's nothing wrong with you is a big part of being healthy, being well, that all people ever focus on are the monetizable parts of wellness. People don't focus on the things that are just about you, that you can do Mm. alone, that you can do for free. When I say people, I mean like big businesses or people want to take advantage and, you know, the reality of it is big business, business is business, right? They're there to, they're there to make money. They're not there. They're not going to make money on this stuff for free, (laughs) but the problem (laughs) is, and, and this is something that, you know, as I said, having worked in healthcare for a long time, I can tell you, as I was saying to Dahlia earlier, like sometimes I believe healthcare isn't what we think it's for, (laughs) Mm -hmm. which, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, what I mean to say is that it really is there to treat you when something has gone wrong. There are elements of it that are there for promoting wellness, for promoting health, but a lot of the elements that are there are there to treat you when things have gone wrong. A lot of the onus on cultivating your own health is going to end up falling into your own hands because that's not actually necessarily what the majority of the system is there for. Yes, there are preventive things in there. There's lots of screenings. There's, you know, you know, there's dental checkups and cleanings and stuff like that. There's not, I'm not saying there's nothing, but I'm saying it's, it's still an industry and an industry mostly will, will exist based on what it's going to monetize. Right. Mm -hmm. And so what will happen is the kind of promoting your own wellness quite often will fall into your own hands, but also it, when you think about wellness, it is often based on the decisions, you, the decisions you make every day and not on the thing that the doctor does once every few months, right? It is often based on your daily decisions and, and nobody tells you that, right? Yeah. <laughs> so, you, you know, I love that. Um, a lot of people don't actually know this, but I actually, <laughs> I actually wrote a, a book about wellness a little while ago. Nobody read it because... I didn't you didn't let anyone know I didn't let anybody know (laughs) but um when I was doing the reading and the research for that book it was it was um it was just interesting to me you know how I think people people only think about their health sometimes when it's gone or when they're Mm. ill or when they turn up at the doctor or whatever the case may be when a lot of it is built every day every moment by the decisions that you make That is a fact because I know I wasn't thinking about my health until I started having all those awful symptoms. I never thought about having a full head of hair until my hair started falling out. I mean, these are, this is just human nature. And it is the reality. (laughs) And I'm not trying to blame people or anything like that, but I'm just saying that I feel like it's not, it's not necessarily the focus of the system to give you that information. But the problem is those everyday decisions are then also influenced by, you know, um, you talked in your book about different things. You talked about microaggressions. You talked about, you know, systemic 
influences, all of those things. Those are the things that influence you daily and influence those daily decisions. And so at the end of the day, that's part of the reason why your health is going to be affected in different ways, depending on how that system falls on you. Yeah. And I think the beauty of acknowledging the reality of our situation, that some things are beyond our control, not our fault. You don't get to pick what country you're going to be born into, and you don't get to pick how that country is going to treat you and what type of influence it's going to have on your well-being. But if somebody would tell you, hey, you know, it is what it is. However, there are things we can do to protect ourselves community is crucial. Having someone you can confide in, prioritizing joy, prioritizing laughter. I've never been at a doctor's appointment where anyone advised me to make sure I was having fun or laughing with friends, you know, a couple of times a week because the focus is so heavy on productivity in capitalist societies for the working class. Anyway, other people can focus on enrichment if you're born into wealth the rest of us are supposed to be productive all the time, but being aware that it is just as important that you have a safe place to live and people you can talk to that make you feel like you're fully seen and understood as it is to eat vegetables. That that's information that people are missing. And to know that let's say you're not doing everything perfect. That's on your list of things you wanted to change at the start of the year. But did you laugh today? Did you feel love today? Did you get a hug today? If that's something you like, not all of us are into hugs. But did you? (laughs) No, I feel you. I totally feel you. The huggers struggle. Hugs, I struggle. I love myself some hugs. Yeah, and that's another thing. Like, it's such a good point you made that we don't realize some things are so crucial to us until they're not there. Yeah, because I don't think a lot of people knew how devastated they would be by not being able to physically touch other people. Yeah. It did. And I didn't realize that I'm an introvert and I've never been a hugger, but I was raised around huggers. So I've learned to go with the flow. (laughs) And I will say though, I did not miss the hugs, but what I didn't know I would miss was sunlight because I have stayed home so much trying to avoid social situations, trying to socially distance. I didn't know how important the outdoors were to me. Mm-hmm. It, it, it got so pitiful. There were points where I would just go outside and lay in the lawn. That's how pitiful it was. That's how much I needed to be outside. Uh, yeah, it's, it's so interesting. And I think, like you said, I think, a, I think it's natural that you don't know what's missing until it's gone. I, I'm not, you know, I wasn't saying that as a, to be disparaging it's reality but unfortunately as, as you said it's not it's not necessarily the focus I think of of healthcare. and I think when I you know again when I was doing that research it was like that element of wellness that includes your mental health right that includes your social health that includes your self-acceptance that includes you know having good relationships and you know, there's a there's a book that I read a while ago called uh, Lost Connections by Johan Harry, um, mm-hmm. and he talks about mental health as and 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 you know poor mental health as losing your connection, and he talks about losing your connection with meaningful work, losing your connection with the outdoors, losing your connection with relationships that matter, losing your connection with yourself, right? That self, yes. that self. So to me, it's. It's forgetting that those things, as you said, are as important as 
eating your vegetables and eating your fruits and drinking your water. Yes. Okay. But right. <laughs> All important. Well, the funny thing is how much taking care of those things that have to do with your emotional state, mm-hmm. make it easier for you to do the other things. Exactly. So we're doing it backwards. If we're telling somebody you need to make sure you do this and we haven't checked in to see, well, what's going on with you and where are you right now? Yeah. I just wanted to let you know how you can support us over here at Writing Black Joy. Firstly, you can join our Patreon community over at patreon.com slash Sophia Robinson. And you'll find the link for that in the show notes. When you sign up over at Patreon to support us, you will get the opportunity to join our monthly group coaching calls and workshops that we'll be holding exclusively for Patreon supporters. So come on over and join the party. It's so much fun over there. Other ways you can support us, hit subscribe here on your podcast or over on the YouTube channel. You can also leave a podcast review, like our YouTube episodes and share us with your friends. You can head over to our website and sign up for our mailing list, www.writingblackjoy.com. Also, follow Writing Black Joy over on Instagram at Writing Black Joy. All of these will be in the show notes. Thanks so much for listening and for supporting our show. One of the things I loved about your book when you started it, I, I'm, I, I did the audio book, so I, I think it might have been in the introduction, but it might also have been in the first chapter, I can't remember. And you talked about creating a resource that was just for you know, persons who are BIPOC, as we discussed earlier, what that means, and also persons who come under that, that queer umbrella. Like you talked about creating a book that was just for them and the reality that there's so much out there created either inadvertently or intentionally for, mm. I call it for white, not even for white, for like straight white men for a full stop, not, not even like you're a woman right like forget about it if you you know heaven forbid you're any of these other things but like you know it's it's this (laughs) this is the second time I realized this because I I was editing another episode yesterday I was like I feel like I keep saying this in every episode but like it's just that's how those a lot of those resources were created even when I think about and you 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 know this probably from university like when you look at all the anatomical drawings (laughs) and everything okay sure so um I love that you wanted to create a resource that was so specifically for people who don't normally have a a resource just dedicated to them and I really really think that that's important I'd love to know does that kind of feed into you know why you're here today and why having those joyful um, stories, uplifting Black stories by Black writers and, and, and content creators is so important to you. Absolutely, because there's something so special about knowing someone is talking to you, especially when you're used to everybody talking around you and not to you. Uh, it There's an example I put in the book that it just, for me, is one of those things that just really stands out as quintessential as far as how you feel when somebody does something that's just for you. So I love getting massages, well, pre-pandemic and going to the spa, things like that. And 
my hair, I've had my hair natural for a really long time because with the thyroid problem, my hair was like, hey, you think you're going to relax this? Oh, nope, not anymore. That, that, is my experience. <laughs> That's, that was my experience too in a nutshell. When I got diagnosed with my thyroid problem, I, I thought the relaxer was too strong. And then my hair is mm. the relaxer too strong. My hair was coming out. And then my hairdresser was like, mm, you need to start relaxing your hair. Yeah. Yeah. Now I can't imagine. I would never straighten my hair again, but when I stopped doing it, people had all these, all kinds of comments. I remember people, black people telling me, no one's going to hire you with locks. No one's going to hire you with braids or telling me I just looked too radical because my hair wasn't relaxed because at first I've heard worse. (laughs) Radical. I'm going to go with that. Blown situation. I don't know if you saw there recently was a petition going around to try and make sure there's some legal protection in the United States from hair-based discrimination because it still happens to kids. It's in the news periodically where somebody sent home because they braided their hair beyond ridiculous. But so what was happening was when I would go to the spa and you put your little face in the massage cradle and they want to get your hair out of the way, they wouldn't know what to do. They would try and put like these really weak bands around my hair and it would like pop off in the middle of the session. And it just felt like, even though they weren't trying to make me not feel welcome and they were being perfectly nice, they obviously weren't ready for me. They obviously hadn't thought about the ways in which a black person's hair might need to be treated. They had tools for straight hair and for loosely curled hair. But I went to a black spa and I didn't even do it consciously. I just had seen it advertised and I went. And when I went in, I was like, wait a minute, already the vibe started to hit me. Like the music felt familiar it was still like chill music but it kind of had like a it was african diaspora feel right (laughs) you know some drums they were quiet drums but they were drums and (laughs) so when i got in there and i laid down the table and the massage therapist braided my hair really a really quick braid you know like your mom would do for you yeah yeah that stayed in place the whole session i felt like some kind of warm ball of energy in my chest and it radiated outwards. I don't know if anyone's ever had that experience where something felt so good or it made you feel so loved. You physically felt it. Yeah. That's the feeling I want people to have when like, I am talking to you. I know you are here. I'm not talking around you. I'm not hoping you can get something out of it. It, this is specifically for you. Mm-hmm. And I have had a lot of white readers say they benefited from yeah. like, and I don't mean to harp on this. I didn't think you meant it in a negative way, but the, this is just how the human brain works. You don't notice a lot of things until it changes. And so they didn't know they were being centered until they weren't centered. And they're like, oh, I still see the benefit and this is great. And of course I would read a book that's not about me. I didn't even know the books were for me. You don't notice it until it's gone. Until, until you, you have something that isn't and you're like, oh, it never actually occurred to me 
and and I I do yeah no I like I said it's it's I, I love I love it but that's a conversation point so that's absolutely fine but um it's so true it's so true and you know it's like I always say like you know even with with a lot of any resources that are maybe specifically created for a woman or a straight person or somebody who's you know like cisgendered or whatever the case may be like you forget that probably everything's created for that person and when, when you see something that isn't you know you kind of oh that's when you realize oh yeah and you realize what you were missing I remember yeah. as a kid I discovered Mildred D. Taylor I don't know if she was really popular other places but she had a lot of books they were all about black people and they were written on a level that was appropriate or readable for elementary school students. These days, based on what people are saying in the news, I'm sure people would claim it was not appropriate. But, and by people, I mean like racist people, even unconsciously racist people that don't want to say it like it is. But her books were about children experiencing life while it was still totally a possibility that your friends would be lynched. And how do you live in, how do you live like that? And to know that even when people are going through these horrible things, people are still maintaining their dignity. People are still having joyful experiences. People are still falling in love. People are still, you know, keeping cultural practices going and passing them on. So many times I've been told, not just by Americans, but by, you know, European people from other countries, actually, and also by some African people that, Black Americans have no culture because the assumption is we were robbed of everything, but we were, we did lose a lot, but you cannot erase the people. You can't do it. At least you can't erase us again, global majority, right? So true. There were long periods where it was difficult to maintain history, but the culture continues. It evolves. You pass things on verbally. There are so many things that I'm learning now that people make fun of that are African-American vernacular quirks that make grammatical sense in Yoruba or in other languages. Mm. So it's like, we may have thought we forgot and we lost everything, but no, you even look at African-American culinary history and habits and how much it mirrors the entire Mm. diaspora and still mirrors things in Africa. Clearly we we are, we still belong to ourselves. Yeah. And when you read black literature, you really feel that you feel like when people say, Oh, do it for the culture. That's a real thing. And how cohesive we tend to be around cultural things. Like if there's a show that's huge at some point, you're someone's going to tell you, you have to see this, like the ways in which we communicate with each other through music, through entertainment, through literature. It's very, it's very strong. And just experiencing that makes me feel like I haven't lost all the things I thought I did and that the ancestors are still talking to us and that we, if we just open our eyes and we get that book and we spend time with people from different parts of the diaspora, that we can really bathe in that. Hmm. Yeah, I definitely, I definitely love that. I agree with that completely. I know you brought a quote for us. I've been asking all the guests to share a quote. So please tell me what is a quote from your work or from someone you admire? 
I really admire Audrey Lord because I think about the time that she was raised in, how amazing it is that not only did she have the thoughts that she had, but that she had the courage to say these things out loud. And the quote that I picked is caring for myself is not self-indulgence. It is self-preservation. And that is an act of political warfare. And that is so this year. And she said it so long ago. Mm, Yeah, I know. I, I think, I feel like you actually had that quote in your book. I feel like you did. And I just loved it that I was like, it's so true. And I think for so many um, you know, especially women or socialized as women, people, the idea of caring for yourself is really like, there's so many other people to care for first. And you forget that you, it's so hard to care for others. If you're not caring for yourself, it's almost mm. impossible. Right. So that, that, yeah. Right. So even if for no other reason, and there's many, many reasons to care for yourself, but if for no other reason, you're not, you're doing those who you care for a disservice if you're not caring for yourself. If that's going to motivate you, then let's go with that. Yes, we'll do whatever we have to do to let's go with that. Taking care of yourself. I don't think that you should need all that, but if that's what you need, just remember that too, right? So that is the truth. I absolutely love that quote so much. Now, I'd love to talk a bit about because I have so many people who who listen and who watch who are writers, aspiring writers, storytellers. I'd love to talk a little bit about the writing process. And I know you, you and I were talking about this before we hit record. Um, that you worked with a publishing company. And so I'd love to know a bit about that process as well. So let's just dig into that a bit and tell me how long did it take you to write the book? You know, you talked about mm. 2020 and George Floyd. So is that is that when you started writing it? Is it did, you, did you start with the with their proposal? Like, I want to know all the things. Yeah. Tell me about so it. I did start in 2020. I started during the pandemic and I felt like I didn't know where to start exactly with even writing a book. Mm. So I had wanted to write a book probably since childhood, but it was just one of those things that I'm like, I want it, but it's never going to happen. I kind of thought. So I started looking around when I was feeling inspired and it's so random. I don't even know how I found her, but I was Googling around and I thought, you know, I probably want guidance from another person who has similar lived experience or who will at least vibe. Right. And I found someone named Jesse Vega, who it was on one of those really old looking sites that still have like green and black type, you know? And it just said, do you know her? When I said earlier, shout out to the group of editors who shares the work. The person who started that group is Jesse Vega. Oh, I didn't know where she came. Right. Oh, so So happy. Her work is focused on helping people of color get their stories out into the world. And somewhere on this random site, it mentioned editors and it just had a tiny little sentence that said something about people of color. I don't even know, but it said something that sounded brown. And I was like, let me Google this person's name. And then when I saw they specifically were trying to help us get our stories out. I reached out to her and basically she was like my writing coach. So my question was, how do I organize my time? I'm still working full time. When do I write? Should I think words a day? Should I think about Mm. how many pages I want to get out? Am I doing a whole chapter? Do my thoughts have to be in order? What do I need to do? And Jesse's so good about letting people know there's no right way. 
And then she also gives you though, a lot of different ways she's seen people do it. And what she did was she would say, let's experiment with this for a week or so, and let's see how you feel. So try words a day. Did that feel right? No, it did not. And try um, just getting all of your thoughts out. So she gave me different approaches she's seen work for different people until I found what worked for me. And what I actually ended up doing in 2020, I was doing massive voice notes. So I thought about what are all the questions I want to answer for my readers? What are all the questions that if I would have had answered for me would have saved me like so much time and stress on trying to accept myself and get back into my body. So I had the questions in mind that I wanted to answer. And then I would ask myself that question. And then I would just talk like I was talking to somebody I wish would read it. And Jesse went so far as she created a meditation for me or visualization where I thought about you know, oh, this is a year to the future, whatever. Somebody walks into the store, they pick up your book. What does it look like? What does it feel like? What are they wearing? What are they thinking when they pick it up? You know, and these got to be really tangible visualizations. And even though who I thought I was writing for ended up shifting at first, I was thinking it was a very young person because the assumption is the young people are the ones that need all this help and guidance. When a lot of us old folks still need a lot of help and guidance, Yeah, right? but we're beyond help, right? <laughs> Let's help the young people, right? <laughs> I did not. That was a sarcastic comment like, to anyone who doesn't know me. <laughs> I ended up thinking more about people who are different ages at different points that just haven't heard yet, that nobody's told them, like, you are valuable and there's nothing wrong with you. All this stress and anxiety that you're experiencing, this is a result of these systems that we're having you live with and your reaction is a human reaction and it's fine and we can work through it. And we are so resilient. We don't have to be strong, but we are, that we also need to look at the ways that we can really shower ourselves with love and prioritize joy, even though people aren't going to tell us to prioritize joy. You do, but like who else does, right? Who else is focusing on that? Even when you look at the stories that people like to focus on, the black stories, they're all tragic stories. And it's like, yes, our lives are tragic and beautiful. Like it's not just all bad news. No. And and like I always say, that's why I started this series because I I hated that. I hated that most of the stories were tragic and I wanted some joyful stories to be out in the world yes. and like somebody's gotta be, be pushing Focus that out that. so yeah, yeah. That. So, coming yeah. across jesse was tremendous though and what was so funny was yeah oh i forgot yes. that i even did this i'm a little busy buddy I, I don't know if other people um love to start projects but not finish them so sometimes i forget about things that i've done because i didn't dig very deep with them so i even put on a summit specifically for black folks and it was called the black joy summit I did it online in 2020 when Americans were like falling apart from stress, black Americans. And during that, I met somebody who mentioned the revolutionary entrepreneurs group at the time. I don't remember what it was called, but it was Giselle Allen. Giselle Allen is a coach and she's a mindset coach for women and femmes of color. Mm -hmm. If you would have said, Dahlia, you need mindset coaching. I'd have been like, no, I don't. That sounds like some luxury stuff. What is that? I don't need that. I just need to learn how to get out of my own way. Or I just need to, all the things that I felt were barriers. I didn't realize mindset was Mm. what it was. 
but there was something about the way Giselle talked about the work she did in her videos in the Facebook group that was like, okay, this is a vibe. I want to do this call and see what her coaching is about. But somebody I met through the Black Joy Summit mentioned, oh, there's this cool group. It was Giselle's group. And then Jesse mentioned it. And when Jesse said it, I was like, oh, I've heard it twice. I think I'm supposed to be in this group. And it was Giselle's coaching, getting coaching, exactly. Getting coaching from two people, having that lived experience of being otherized. Jesse as like a multiracial person, as a Latine person, and then Giselle as a black American. Getting coaching from them is what empowered me to not feel so stuck in my own fear that I kept trying to pull punches in my writing. And that I was afraid that I still needed to think about the white folks that might read it, right? I was able to get beyond that only with the help of those two coaches. I mean, Jesse's really an editor, but also like a natural coach. Yeah, love Jesse. I love, hey, Jesse. She's, she's, she doesn't know this, but she's watching. I'm going to tell her as soon because I'm going to. She be, has a writing group too. She does, like, yeah. She has one yeah, now. Get in on that. On, on Patreon. And um, I'm chatting with her tomorrow because we meet up once a month. The group of us meet up once a month. So yeah, oh, small world. I love Jessie. She's too sweet, love her. I really wouldn't have even thought about going with a traditional publisher had it not been for Jessie because I was thinking- other thing she does. She does help you with your book proposal. Yes, she does. She totally helped me with my book proposal and helped me understand that in the proposal, you're trying to communicate how- thirsty is the audience for this? Is this probably going to sell? Why do you think it's going to sell? How are you different from other people? What other books are out there that indicate there is an interest in this type of thing? Um, Maybe how big is your audience? That's not a deal breaker for a lot of people. But if that's something that you've got in your favor, you can mention that. And not even just your audience, how big is your, how many people can you ask for help when you're trying to get this message out there, like, do you have entry points? They just want to know, is their money going to come back and then some? Yeah, basically. And I'm curious how much, because I, I, I know so many people who talk about and think about going traditional, how much ownership do you then, do you then, or did you, Dahlia, then have of what was published? Because I know, obviously, I've heard, you know, even larger authors with big platforms go with traditional publishing companies feel that they did not have a lot of creative control over what eventually came out. So how did that, how did you feel about that? I was amazed by the experience, but they kept saying, this is a partnership. And I think that is an indication that not all publishers are rolling like that. Mm. And they also don't take on a ton of authors every year. So they have the bandwidth to actually keep talking to you and making, they don't make any decisions without you really. They, I got to tell them which fonts I like the most for the cover, which artist I wanted to work on the cover. They, they kept giving me options. And then there were different, it took over a year, a little bit over a year, I think. And um, I even felt blessed with the particular editor I was assigned to. So I, with the help of the coaching, with Giselle's coaching, I was able to speak up and say, is there anybody of color that could possibly help me with editing? And it was funny. They said, okay, the day before that person had asked to be assigned to me. 
And it's not like they've got a ton of, you know, not a very diverse staff. They're very, very nice. And they, I'm sure they wanted diverse staff. At least that's the vibe I got, but they just didn't really have it. But the person who first noticed the book was one of their black editors. And the person who got assigned to me, she was perfectly aligned with the message. So I started to feel like someone or something is conspiring to make this book come out. Like the way everything just kept leading and leading and leading, like stumbling across Jesse, Jesse pointing me to Giselle, Jesse telling me, Hey, I just, you know, took another workshop on writing proposals. And I really feel like this book could be accepted by a traditional publisher. Are you sure you don't want to pitch it? And I was like, well, you know, I don't think anybody's going to take it, but I guess. And she totally held my hand through that whole process. I could do it now, but before I would not have any I would not have had any idea of what to do. And Mm -hmm. I feel like the difference that some of these coaches and like people like you and other people are making out there is not everybody has access to a network that can show them how to do everything. You know, that's kind of usually a person of privilege type of thing. So when we know something and we share it with others, we're out here changing lives because had Jesse not told me that and helped me, I would not have even tried. And now look, you, you, you got the proposal, you did it. It actually got picked up by the publisher um, and you were able to produce this amazing book, an audio book, which is just, I, I just, I mean, like, I have so many more I questions. I even got to pick yeah. the voiceover artists. Like they were yes. different actors. And I got to say, oh, I want it to be, I, I felt in my heart, I wanted to be a black person. I wanted it to be a femme person. Just because I I don't know if it's the same in other countries, but like the sexism in the black American community is so intense. I'm always looking to uplift black femme voices. And even though I like, I don't actually use pronouns and I've always leaned mask of center, but the experience of being a black person assigned female at birth is so unique. If a black woman calls me sis, I don't mind. Right. Because the experience that we've had is just so that shared experience unique. Yes. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. everybody likes to give us grief. It's a whole thing, but <laughs> there's so many awesome things about being able to be part of this group of people as a black femme presenting person that I knew that was the type of voice I wanted. Some of the other voices also were very tempting, but I, yeah, I didn't go with, there were some UK accents in there and I was just like, well, it doesn't sound like me. So Mm. I felt so included in all of the decisions that they made. And some of the stuff I was like, wow, this is beyond my wildest dreams. Because I started to think when you look at your earning potential, self-publishing looked very attractive to me. Yeah. But then this this particular publisher, I felt like the amount of work they have done on this project with me, I, there's no way I could have done it alone. I would not have probably hired a graphic designer. I would not have thought about like hiring someone who specifically does fonts. I would not have had three editors going over my stuff. I inevitably would have had errors, which you know how when you read your brain skips over the errors anyway, that's certainly not the end of the world. Actually, why you hire an editor, because you can see what you see is what's the correct when your brain just 
translate like oh yeah it skips over the errors and whatever it's so true it's so true <laughs> and you literally can't see it until it's like you paid to have it printed then you're like, ah, you're I like see it now. oh yeah <laughs> and what about did you have an agent I didn't and I I my understanding is an agent can probably get you better deals um maybe more competitive deals but when I googled around like what is normal for uh advance for somebody no one's ever heard of like myself I did great especially in nonfiction especially nonfiction you know right and I really felt like they took a a chance on me and I have been working my little butt off trying to get indoors and network with people Instagram decided to shut my account down right before the book launched but I said you know what I think this could be first of all I think it's depression number one but secondly I thought you know when something is supposed to happen, nothing can stop it. Yeah. And Black people are so used to just making it happen anyway that I feel like I have so many resources to pull on that I didn't even realize. Because you, you see other people saying in business, and you probably see it a lot in podcasting, people pitching you who've never listen to your show and don't know anything about uh, it. Yeah. And so, yeah, I have a... <laughs> anyway... That's a whole separate conversation. We could talk about that. You know, naturally, it's a cultural thing for us to connect with people in a genuine way and for us not to bother talking to people we don't want to talk to. Like, that's such a normal cultural thing. You know, people who don't, you know, the expression is like, I don't F with that person. Like, Mm -hmm. whatever it is, you just don't like them. Yeah. And then I started realizing all these superficial ways that people were talking about networking, really with a colonizer vibe didn't resonate with me because culturally that's not a fit. Like we're big on saying what you mean and meaning what you say. But then I also realized, oh my goodness, I know so many people thanks to being in that container with G cells people Mm -hmm. that I can ask for help. And they're actually friends. And some people were not super close because we don't live in the same area. Maybe we don't have a ton in common. Like they have kids. I don't have kids, blah, blah, blah. Our life is different. But you know, those people that, you know, if you lived in the same town, you'd be together every week. You definitely like each other. And if they asked me for anything, I know I would do it. So Mm -hmm. I didn't even realize how much just literally being myself and having that experience as like, a person who has chosen family, you know, black Americans, a lot will say they have play cousins, but that concept of treating people who are not blood relatives as family, you see it throughout the diaspora. This is just what we do. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. And if you realize that's an asset and you start reaching out to people, knowing how many people want to support you, it's crazy how much reach you have that you haven't even thought about. Yeah, definitely. And I, I totally agree with that. Like I said, you know, I talked about the same editors that have been sharing my work. And I even had um, one of them, Kathleen, she was, she's in also in that group of editors. She joined me a couple episodes ago and, you know, it's just, that's, that's probably one of my favorite things. You know, people say I'll have a lot of horrible things to say about social media and maybe they're true, but like I met some incredible folks on there who really and truly I would do, I would do for them and they would do for me. And it's not a superficial um, transactional type of thing. It's a, you know, it's a real connection that you've made with that person. And I love that you were able to really, you know, through those resources, through those, through those relationships, I should say, you were able to 
really get the book out there. Um, and it's so funny because like I said, I, we, you and I are in a couple of uh, Facebook groups together. And so I, as soon as I saw the book, it was like, I sent Dalia, I was like, Dalia, you need to come on <laughs> the podcast. So and I love that. You know, when you see those posts, like, I love us, like that, that is what yes. I feel when I just see us rallying behind each other, which is yes. so funny, so different from what people put out there. Like they assume yes. we're all in competition with each other, whatever. And, that and has also, not been I'm my not, experience. No, I'm not just in terms of your ethnicity, but even in terms of women, you yeah. know, and, and anybody who socializes a woman, like there's this whole vibe of like, and cat fight and all this craziness. When I am always like, I have the most incredible women in my life. And I don't feel those vibes at all. And, you know, it's, it's, it's the kind of the, the, the kind of thing that you want to put out there as opposed to the reality, which is that you have these relationships, you have these connections and, you know, those people are always happy to support you. And, and, and yeah, so we have so yeah. much more than we real. at least that's what I have learned through this process. I have so much more than I realized because what I've always seen or through school, through, business trainings kind of done for that were centered on white cis men. Mm-hmm. I wasn't recognizing what I had because it didn't match the assets what? that they said mm-hmm. I should develop. It didn't look the same. And so I was like, Oh no, I I've got this deficit, you know, not realizing like they can't speak to these cultural nuances because that's not their experience. No. And, and, and they're just enough. as valuable. Right. They are very valuable, extremely. Um, so I'm going to skip through some of the questions because we've been chatting for so long. <laughs> that I don't want to take up too much more of your time, but I would love to know what advice would you give a budding writer, especially somebody who feels like they may have um, intersecting identities that are a little bit different to the norm, different to the mainstream, and they want to create something for that people who they feel like they really resonate with and that they really connect with. What would you say to them? That getting in a space where you can feel safe is the most important thing to have in place to really write as yourself and to be able to not be so afraid of making a mistake or looking silly or failing that you can't write. And that may mean you need to get in with a affirming writing group with people that either have the same identities, some shared identities and celebrate you, or you need to be in a coaching container with other people that really make you feel safe. And there are people out there that are doing that in an equitable way. Um, When we think about liberation work, you also have to charge rates that support your own liberation too. So you may not always find stuff at the right price point for you, but if you look, definitely check out Jesse. Right. She's a wonderful resource. Yeah. She's got a Patreon community, which she recently started um, for the writing group. I have also have a Patreon community for this, for this uh, platform for people, you know, we have like monthly, um, workshops or coaching groups or stuff like that so there's there's there there are things out there at price points that you can really manage and 
there's also something out there like what you would have had with Jesse or what I've had with some of my clients like that one-on-one where that person yeah. can really devote that time to you if you have that resource. So it's about looking for the resource that really, uh, and then there are free writing groups out there that you can just have that sort of connection with. And maybe you can find an accountability partner that is willing to write with you. So there are lots of different options out there, but I love that sort of real at the heart of like finding a safe community to write in. I love that. That's one of my, because that that's been so helpful to me. Also, when you're with people like that, like you, with your coaching experience, this is something that you get with a, a good coach. They will not make your way wrong. They will help you find your way. They're not going to give you like, here's a one size fits all template. They're going to help you find your way. And I was talking to someone who every time I talk to this person, they say like stuff that I feel like I need to write down. And someone has approached them with a book deal. And they said, no, I don't think I can do it. I'm afraid of it because of their dyslexia. And I'm like, there is a way, there is a way for Mm. everybody, but your way might be different. I'm like, you could record it. Somebody can can transcribe it. There is a way. I'm going to tell you by the time this goes live, everyone would have heard my interview with my friend, Gary Ware. Um, and he has ADHD. He has, I think, believe he's dyslexic as well. And he talks about how he wrote his Mm. book, even with, with those sort of challenges, quote unquote, how he actually was able to do it. And so it is possible. It's definitely possible. And I was so happy that he was able to tell us how he did it. And that's exactly how he did it. He did a collaborative writing with an editor, you know, different things. He Go back and find the, Gary's episode if you want to hear how he did it. But there is a way. There's always a way. If you want to write, there I is always that. a way. Yeah. And I love that you're sharing that resource because, you know, not everybody is going to know where to look. So you're putting examples in front of people of what you can do and all the different ways you can do it. Yeah. And they are so many different ways to do it. And I really feel like, and one thing I will say, cause I'm in a couple of writing groups and I remember a while ago, this thing came up about people that have ghostwriters or whatever. And you know what? Every space is not safe. Every space is not for you. Every space is not encouraging. Always remember that, right? Just because it may be, oh, it's a, you know, I'm from the Caribbean, maybe a Caribbean group part, maybe a group of, you know, people who are non-binary, whatever the case may be, every space is not going to be encouraging and uplifting and safe. And the key is to keep trying until you find that space, Mm -hmm. keep trying until you find that space, because then you will, you will be surprised at how much further you will go with that boost, with that accountability, with that, you know, somebody really kind of like boosting you up and, and, and really encouraging you and keeping you going. Yeah. It's amazing what community does. Mm. It, it constantly blows my mind. Cause I feel like I've grown more in the last two years than the last 10. Yeah. I love that. So, so much. And, uh, yeah. So, um, I'm going to quickly ask my last wrap up question, which I love conversation. Like, what do you like to read or listen to or watch? I am obsessed with Samantha Irby. She is so funny to me. She's mm. so funny. And her personal essays, I think uh, the book, We're Never Gonna Talk in Real Life. I think I've read it like three times and every time it's just so funny. And I love how real it is. And so the difficult moments are there and the humor is there. Mm. And I just like the balance that, Nothing is a hundred percent tragic ever, 
Nope. And there's always joyful spots. So that just, I really love that. And then I've been listening to more sci-fi or speculative fiction Mm. from black writers. There's so Mm. much to dig into. And I love Peel, Jordan Peel. I know some of his stuff has been like maybe a little cheesy, but I thought that was on purpose with some of those horror films. But I could not get over how much I loved, um, what was the name of the series? I literally just forgot it. It was a sci-fi series. It was on HBO and it was so black. It was so good. I'm sure everybody knows what I'm talking about. I yeah. Like if you remember the name, Dahlia, just let me know. And I, I'm just going to put it in the show notes because I've, I've been putting the different books and stuff that people have been talking about in the show notes. So if you eventually remember it and tell me, I'll put it in the show notes. If you, By the time you see this episode, hopefully you can look in the show notes and see what it is. If you didn't. Yes. Oh, forgive oh. my very, oh, Lovecraft Country. That's what it was. Lovecraft Country. Okay. Oh definitely. my goodness. I loved it. I mean, I've read mixed reviews, but that's the whole thing with reviews. And that's a reminder for all creatives you know, to every pot has its cover. Sometimes your work isn't for everybody, but to me, that show was just life-giving because of the way it brought in historical things that I'd always known about, but never heard acknowledged on that type of level. And I've seen other documentaries and other acknowledgements come out afterwards Mm. that I really think this work of fiction prompted because it probably made people Google it and they're like, is this real? Or is this part of the story? And I just thought it was amazing. Absolutely beautiful. Perfect. Well, there we go. Um, where can we find you, Dahlia? Are you, are you still on Instagram? Did you get back on? Or no, those jokers. I, I don't know. You know, I'm starting to feel like maybe I don't want to go back. I had been saying that I wanted to get off social media because it's such a time drain. And because so many of these platforms are seriously anti-Black, ridiculously anti-Black. And mm-hmm. we're basically giving them free content for them to not even show I don't know. It just kind of feels like throwing pearls before swine, which might be a little dramatic, but that's, you know, I got sassy once I got kicked off that I, <laughs> I got more so strong on being anti-social media. Absolutely fine. <laughs> so no, the best probably. place to find me is going to be daliakinsey.com. And I'm going to start writing on medium. So please look for me on medium and follow me there. Sure. And if Dahlia has started doing that by the time this episode comes out, the link is actually going to be in the show notes because just before I bring it out, I'm just going to, you know, give you a shout and be like, you got that medium link for me and I'll drop it in the show notes. So thank you. No problem. Keep me together. <laughs> I, I will definitely keep you together for sure. So thank you so much for joining me, Dolly. This conversation is so much fun. It, it was, it, it could have been so much longer. It still could be so much longer because <laughs> I have so many questions and I just, I've said this to every guest I have, like, I think I'm going to have to have you back. I've decided I'm going to have to have a whole other season, which is just like all my guests coming back because everybody. Oh, so I love awesome. that idea. And so we will talk again. So thank, thank you so much for having me. No problem. And everybody out there, happy reading. Go and get Dahlia's book. Happy reading. Bye. Thank you for joining us today. You can find out more about our guests in the notes below. And don't forget to hit subscribe to subscribe to our channel so that you don't miss new episodes when they drop. And if this has inspired you to get your own writing project into the world, click on my website below and learn how you can work with me as a writing coach or an editor. Until next time, I send you big love from a small island.